Welcome everyone to Bulldog Bites. I'm your host, Mark Henriquez, a partner at Womble Carlisle's Business Litigation Practice Group. With me today is Peter Barr, counsel at Rack Room Shoes. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Rack Room Shoes was founded in 1920 and is headquartered here in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's got more than 450 stores in 34 states. And Peter, you've been there 15 years? Yes, it's hard to believe. <laughs> That's a long time, I know, in, th- in this day and age uh, to stay in one place. And as a tribute, Peter, to you, I noticed that in 2014 you were named Outstanding General Counsel of the Year by the Charlotte Business Journal. That's a coveted role, so uh, congratulations on that, and and we're happy to have you here today. Thank you. Peter, you have something you call your Car Talk Rules of Contracting. Now, I love Car Talk, but for those listeners that might not know, could you explain to us what Car Talk is and how it relates to your legal philosophy? Well, Tom and Ray, brothers in Boston with very thick Boston accents, um, one was a professor at uh, MIT, I believe, and the other actually ran the family car repair shop, and they had a call-in show for years, they're still playing it on repeat, um, where they discussed uh, car problems and the general (laughs) human condition. So it was very entertaining, very funny, and uh, unfortunately Ray died um, in November of 2014. And to some extent, as an as an, um, in in honor of him, we came up with these ten rules. Well, I think this is an appropriate tribute to them. Some of these rules, because I think they really do provide insight into folks. I mean, contracting something that no matter your industry or your focus, you're going to be entering into contracts, big and small. Um, and some of those are going to end up in dispute. So I hope this is relevant to all the GCs out there that are, are trying to deal with contracts and how to, how to make it work. I think the, the first one that, that you've listed is don't be afraid of work. Make work afraid of you. What, what does that mean? A contract is not the great American novel. You do not have to spend hours and hours on every contract. Don't make it longer than it has to be. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in leaving out whereas clauses unless you really have to have them. And I have an ongoing uh, discussion with uh, one of the attorneys I work with over this because he tends to like whereas clauses. Do they serve any useful purpose? Certainly, and, and occasionally we do um, include them when there is, especially when there is a confusing, um, cir- there are confusing circumstances behind a contract and you want to sort of explain what the intent is, that's a handy place for a whereas clause. Otherwise, I think people sort of put them in there and you get used to, you know, we lawyers, we love to do exactly what somebody else did before us. Right. And really, a contract's just a story you want to be able to tell. That's great. No, I, thanks. I think that's I think that's helpful, um, and and I do I think shorter is better in a lot of contracts. And and as lawyers, there's so you often bristle bristle at that. Um, tell me about non impedenti ratoni cognitosis, and I'm probably mispronouncing that. You can say it, you can say it better than I as scholar. I am glad that you had to pronounce it. It uh, translates to unencumbered by the thought process. Um, this sort of builds off the last rule, but you're not writing the Bible. I know it is hard when you're negotiating. You want these things to all fit together. You want it to be a, a, a work of art. And in negotiations, you don't always get to do that. Sometimes you have to leave ambiguity because you and the other lawyer, you're, the parties, 
can't agree. So you leave it ambiguous to get the deal done. Um, and you know what? Even the Bible is open to interpretation, apparently. So no. the fact that a contract is should make a lot of sense. <laughs> oh, no, good, good advice. Um, rule three is it's only a car. <laughs> <laughs> or a contract is right. just a contract, and it's not always pretty. There seems to be a theme here, you may notice. (laughs) Short, it's not going to be pretty. Um, Oftentimes, um, we say in my department that uh, the contract is planted on ugly ground. You don't always get all the terms you need. Um, Sometimes the terms are are, are not well thought through from a lawyer's perspective. And so you have to take that and and create something that actually makes sense. And negotiations and compromise tend to not create beauty. Um, You know what they say about committees um, (laughs) creating a statute. You don't want that. You want an artist. So you don't get to be an artist. We are committees, whether we like it or not. You mentioned committees. Kind of what's the role at least at rack room in terms of how much the business side does drafting or do they just give you bullet points and and your department you know does the drafting how, how do you work that balance between the business folks who know what this deal's supposed to be and the lawyers who want to make sure it's properly documented by and large we try to build a team that works with bullet points on the business points and lawyers that try to adhere very closely to the bullet points. Um, Often, especially in-house lawyers, but I think it's true of all of us, we tend to be pretty smart people. I mean, we all got through three years of law school. (laughs) Some of us got to work at big fancy law firms, you know. But you look at these deals and you think, oh, well, from a business perspective, maybe this would be better. And if it's an important element, that is certainly something you can bring up in an advisory perspective with your business partner but the the business points are the business deals and you cannot move through contract negotiations quickly if you're trying to renegotiate the underlying terms gotcha so you're trying to put some protection around it but you're not there to renegotiate that that basic business deal. that's the plan at least I, i've got you so <laughs> this is another good card reference. You know, if it falls off, it doesn't matter. Or, or what's a muffler for anyway? <laughs> That's a perfect example. Right. Well, you got to let the other person win some. If you completely roll over the other person, which, you know, some of your clients like um, Oracle can do. They can basically tell you what the contract's going to say and you don't have much leverage. But in most negotiations, you have to determine what's important to your client, what protections are important, what kind of risks are are you and your company willing to take on and give away, give some ground on some of that. That's part of the compromise and negotiation. So yeah, a lot of times stuff can fall off and it's never going to make any difference. And if you make everything important, nothing is important. Gotcha. No. Um, well, th- these are fun. Looks like the sixth rule is reality often astonishes theory. <laughs> Tell me more. Well, <laughs> in theory, as a lawyer, you can look at something and say, okay, here are the issues and here's where we want to get. But the politics, which aren't necessarily, I don't think office politics 
is inherently a bad thing. Office politics are generally informed by the history of a company. And so if you are willing to open your mind to listening to the politics, you can determine what of those uh, elements are the important ones for your for your company. If your company is n not in a zone that if you're if you're negotiating a lease for property that is not in a flood zone, not in a hurricane area, not in Tornado Alley, or an earthquake zone, come to think <laughs> of it. Um, you do not need to spend every waking moment on casualty. Um, but if you know that you like to pack uh, stores um, closely together, well then the radius clause, limiting how many uh, stores you can put um, close to each other, may be an important element. Right. For the record, we don't do that. We don't pack <laughs> stores in real time. No, no. Okay. Gotcha. So, yeah, so focus more on what's going to really matter to the business people that are going to be signing this deal um, and that reality as opposed to some theoretical legal concept of this is the preferred draft. Well, and it, and it goes to the risk analysis as well. Okay. Um, if, if you have an area where you can afford to um, live with the risk, then, yeah. Let yeah. that go. Right. Well, and that's a great segue to Rule 7, which says if money can fix it, it's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> or the importance of risk analysis. Right. Right. Um, and yes, that is exactly what it's about. You have to be pra practical. Watch out for the small um, chance of a very deep downside. And you have to define what a deep downside is. Um, for instance, if, if uh, you're an entrepreneur and you are personally guaranteeing all of these large debts, well, if, if your cash flow is not sufficient and there's a trip up along the way, that can be devastating to you because not only does the company go, but all of your finances go with it. Um, if you are a large company, however, and you can absorb uh, six, seven, eight hundred thousand, six, seven, eight million dollar risk, well, then you can take that into account. Um, and the small chance of a problem doesn't need to become paramount in a negotiation. Great. All right, <laughs> rule number eight, and lawyers love this, never let the facts stand in the way of a good answer. <laughs> um, I always talk about a, a hook to hang a hat on. If you cannot get great language, if you cannot protect yourself from a risk that you want protection on, if you can put something in that contract that you can hang a hat on, um, you know, maybe it's a good faith clause, um, something along those lines so that uh, if, if it goes south and you do end up in court or in front of a mediator, as the case may be, um, you, and you've got a good story, which hopefully you do have a good story if you end up in that situation. You want something that, even if it isn't directly on point, that mediator or judge can say, oh, well, I kind of like their story, so based on that little hook, I can kind of tie onto that and let some rope out and pull on it. Right. Well, and obviously, if it's someone that litigates these disputes, the ability to, the importance of a good story matters more than a lot of the specific language in the contract, particularly if those hooks are left there by a good drafter. So I think that's a 
that's a great um, a great tip. Uh, rule number nine says our humility is what makes us great. Lawyer's ego. A lawyer's ego is often his Achilles heel, and we see this all the time. Um, and, and we fight it ourselves too. Um, we want everybody to think we're smart. You know, we went to law school. We want people to recognize, oh my God, these people are very, very smart and they work so hard. The, the problem is you can let your ego get in the way of a good contract. Um, and you see it. You will see a lawyer who comes back. If you send out the first form, and we tend at, at Rackrew, we, we tend to try to take out as much of the legalese. We try to tell a story. So it doesn't look necessarily like every other contract. And if a lawyer comes in and wants to write out all of the numerical amounts in text and put the, the actual numbers in parens, wants to add therefores and whereas clauses, whatever, and they don't really have any impact, hey, we're happy to let him do that because it makes him feel like he has added value. And by God, we want him to feel like he's added value. We want his client to feel like he added value because that gets the deal done. You do not want to be the lawyer that's adding value by changing how you represent numbers in a contract. Gotcha, that's great. Rule 10 is one of my favorite quotes from Car Talk. Um, Tom Magliozzi says, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? <laughs> I love this quote. Well, you know, hey, this, is, this has been one of my, my quotes uh, for, for a long time. Um, you know, and it goes along to that. If they want to spell out the numbers, let them spell out the numbers. If they want to change the terminology and the contract still holds together, let them do that. Let them be happy so you can be happy. Being right oftentimes is about details and you don't want to get bogged down in the details if they are not the important details. Um, so yeah, and, and this is really, really hard for lawyers because in fact, most of us probably were the ones all through high school and college who would never admit we were wrong about anything and argued everything out because we had to be right. So this one is, is tough, but if you can get there, it's, it's, it's a very zen place yeah. to be. Well, and I think you shared with me, too, that um, there's an aspect of the same saying in terms of happiness, that happiness is um, reality minus expectations. And, and I think that, you know, that's something that, that we learn, or those of us who have been around for a while, setting those expectations is often how you decide what is victory and what is defeat. So how do you, how do you bring that into, into your world in terms of making, you know, creating happiness there? If, if you create an expectation of a uh, winning position and then cannot meet that expectation, you've lost. However, if you can be a little bit more rational, a little bit more reasonable, a little more happy and say, well, probably we can do this. So what we always get trouble for as lawyers is say, well, it could be this, it could be that. Um, it's probably going to be like this. Oh, it's a jury. You never know what a jury's going to do. But in reality, what you are doing is controlling expectations, and that's incredibly important because you, a lot of our jobs as lawyers, um, especially in litigation, I know you know this well, and also as in-house lawyers, is to identify risk and get to a place where maybe we have to pay a little money to settle something, maybe we have to pay a little money to get out of a contract, but it's less than the risk. 
And if you have created an expectation where nobody believes they should ever have to pay any money, it becomes very difficult to get to that good solution for your client. Sometimes the other party won't cooperate and <laughs> you have to go to trial, but right. you try to avoid that. Right. Um, we actually had a question come in from one of our listeners. Um, Chris Osborne asked uh, via LinkedIn, could you please ask Mr. Barr, what is the role of a GC self-awareness and self-care in navigating thorny contract negotiations? And what, if anything, can we outside counsel learn from general counsels in that regard? Well, thank you for the question, Chris. I uh, think you and I have actually had conversations a little bit about this. It, it goes back to the ego question, certainly, but it also goes back to the communications. Feel free to ask your general counsel, your in-house uh, counterpart, what the parameters, what the, the politics are around it. Um, have a discussion with them about, well, what's been important in the past? Well, have you done marketing contracts in the past? And what did you think was important? Um, have you had bad outcomes in the past regarding this particular sort of a contract? And what were those so that you can be sure to protect against those? Um, but again, a lot of it is the willingness to ask the question as it comes up from both your side, which is harder actually. Our side, we're not expected to be experts. Um, we're the generalists. We can ask the dumb questions. Besides that, we're the clients, so everybody has to treat us like we're smart and funny. <laughs> you all have to prove that you're worth you know, your hourly rate. So it's a little riskier, but I do think that those are the questions that make for not just good contracts, but long-term good outside-inside counsel relationships. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now we'll spend just a couple minutes on, on a recent case, a practical tip, and some, some news items. Um, uh, one case that I think anyone doing contracts should be familiar with is a decision from the Court of Appeals in April in Southeast Kazins versus Choke Construction Company. That case had two important holdings from the Court of Appeals. One is that if you've got a contract and it simply specifies what the venue is without using the word exclusive, it won't be an exclusive venue. So saying that venue will be here in Charlotte may not be enough. And for a long time, I think many of us drafters thought that would work. The Court of Appeals said, if unless you say exclusive or only, you're simply listing a venue, not an exclusive venue. Um, and I wonder about the precedential value because the court also found that after they went out of their way to, to construe that venue clause, they found that since neither party had actually signed a contract, even though it had been negotiated for months and the whole construction project had been done, that the, the contract itself was never executed and that by not signing it, they evidence a desire not to sign it, which is also an unusual case in something where you have performance. A lot of times you have a draft and you say, well, we went ahead and performed, so it's the last version. Here the court said it had signature spaces that were not filled in. That evidence is an intent not to contract. So an interesting lesson to get the signatures if you want that contract to be binding. And it does happen. You get down the road and you never actually reach agreement on certain elements, and yet you've got partial performance or on an amendment. Um, to something that you, you've moved on, you're already operating under the amendment, but nobody can ever come to agreement 
on the on the actual contract. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I guess the the two news items that caught my eye this week were the Yahoo breach. As you know, over 500 million accounts were compromised, including passwords and security questions. Um, I can tell you, we're going to be talking about data breach in a future Womble Bites. Um, and then the last article I saw, and this is something I've been thinking about for a while because of my, the work I do in information technology. But the Department of Transportation has now issued regulations on driverless cars. Um, and there's a lot of talk about uh, the not too distant future of driverless trucks, cabs, uh, cars, even boats. I saw something about these big uh, freight liners going back and across the Atlantic, um, all going to be done automated. And I think that's an interesting look at the future. And it, it boggles the mind to think about the legal implications of, uh, you know, getting struck by a car without a driver. Do you sue the computer programmer? Do you sue the car manufacturer? Do you sue the person sitting in the passenger seat that didn't grab the wheel? I think it's a fascinating area. It would certainly be an interesting time to be the uh, GC of Ford. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, I wanted to wrap up the podcast with a couple of quizzes, and Peter does not know these questions are coming, but given your experience, I decided to ask uh, three shoe-related questions. Are you ready, Peter? I think I'm ready. <laughs> All right, question number one. How does a player earn the most points with a single throw in a game of horseshoes? <laughs> a ringer. Right. Um, three points. Three points for encircling the state. Congratulations. One question right. I'm Two a, to go. I'm a good old Kansas-born lawyer. <laughs> All right. I, I like it. That's great. Question number two. What are the plastic ends of laces called? Oh, wow. <laughs> How about pinchers? Pinchers? Now, the actual answer is aglet, which can be made of metal or wood or plastic and are designed to keep the string together and feed the shoe I'm going to bring that up the, the next, next that. I'll bring that up That's the right. next management team meeting. <laughs> All right. And now a sports-related question. Last year, shoemaking giant Nike signed its first-ever lifetime endorsement contract with which professional athlete? Oh, my God. I don't know this, and I should know this. <laughs> the answer is LeBron James. That makes and, sense. And the contract's estimated to be worth more than $400 million. So... The reason I don't know that is that although we carry a large line of Nike shoes at Rack Room and Off-Broadway Shoes, we do not get to carry LeBron James' shoes. Oh, well. Well, then you'll have to shop elsewhere, and you don't want to do that. I encourage all, our listeners, not. all our listeners to buy all their shoes at Rack Room Shoes. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for being with us here today. If listeners want to hear more from you, do you have a, a place to find you online? Or I am. Certainly happy to uh, answer questions on LinkedIn. And also my email at the office is pbar, P-B-A-R-R, at rackroom.com. Terrific. That's our time for today. I hope everyone will join us next time for another interesting practical tips for general counsel. You can subscribe to the podcast and find out more about me and our guests by heading to wcsr.com slash podcast. While you're there, you can shoot us questions and comments, including questions uh, for Peter, who talked today, that we can address in upcoming episodes. Thanks much for listening, and until next time, have fun.